When the government implemented eviction moratoriums, they did something that we had never seen in the history of our country. And it changed the entire perspective that people had on investing in real estate. Well, hello and welcome back. Matt Williams here with my co-host, Nicholas Cook. We're getting back on track. We're pulling ourselves out of the fog that was the last two years. We have a lot of insight, a lot of lessons learned over the past couple of years, and we're using those to pivot a bit from our original template. We're both in real estate sales, management, and obviously investments. So we want to give you all an update on what's going on in the real estate world in the Northwest. But we've also seen a lot of clients, friends, and family members making really big life decisions, changing jobs, working remotely, selling a business, starting a new business. Those have all been elements of the shift recently, and we want to open the show up a bit to include the entrepreneurial spirit, job markets, business strategies, tax structures, different currencies. There's just a ton of other things that go into investing in your future. So you'll hear us broaden our guest list and our topics moving forward. We're still focused on the Northwest and things that impact your investments here in the Northwest region, but we want to incorporate the other moving parts that contribute to your investment strategies. So without further ado, let's dig in. Nicholas, welcome back. Give us a little update on what you've been up to the past couple of years and how your life and business has changed. Well, hey, Matt, thank you. Um, And I guess just a quick point of clarification, we are going to be covering areas in the Western region, not just the Northwest. So I'm just going to put that little correction there a little footnote for for our listeners here it's all right we're restarting you know getting (laughs) back into the stride good clarification but i mean we just didn't want to include california because no one invests there anymore no i mean it looks like that i mean we look at the (laughs) the migration patterns yeah they're actually losing people for i think the first time in california's history i think the net population is down so um we'll have to fact check that but i'm pretty sure that that's what's happening what i've seen um yeah i mean wow the, the last couple of years have been a roller coaster ride, um, both personally and professionally. Uh, a lot of uh, highs and lows. I'm sure a lot of you've you know, had the same experience. Uh, really eye-opening. Obviously, COVID kind of changed the way that we approach everything here at uh, Sleep Sound, um, and then a way that a lot of our clients operate, and then just how we live live our lives. But uh, it does look like we're getting back on track um, overall. So uh, you know, we're excited to kind of reconvene, and you know, we wanted to do this sooner, but I think there was just a lot of moving parts and kind of figuring out what did we want to do, what kind of content did we want to deliver, and things were changing so rapidly that it was almost like, you know, is this going to be valuable and relevant, which, you know, debatably maybe it was, but, you know, we are uh, doing this and uh, back on track, so we're excited to do it. So, Matt, I know there's a lot of stuff that we want to touch base on today. Um, do you want to kind of open up a little bit about kind of uh, what you've been up to, and then I can... You know, kind of talk a little bit about the the real estate market and some of the operational things and you know talking about where we think things are headed obviously that's where probably most people are interested you know what's happening with you know the inflation um, and all that kind of stuff yeah for sure um, you know obviously with so much going on just about everybody was mobile and that got me thinking a lot over the last couple of years just um, you know what does it look like to expand and where do I want to be where do I where did I see opportunity uh, so I took a visit to one of my mobile home parks in Wyoming, and on the way back, uh, wife and kids and I stopped in uh, to Boise, had a great time, and I started studying that market a little bit. That's been a couple of years ago, and then um, I ended up opening up a, a branch over there. So I'm licensed in Idaho now, as well as Oregon and Washington. I'm looking for investment properties and helping clients just move 
assets. And a lot of times that's a kind of a balance, right? Of, you know, where mm -hmm. you see market growth, uh, where you see minimizing tax liability and where you see minimizing liability in general. So, you know, the, the higher the restrictions on landlord tenant law, the higher the liability and you have to kind of budget for that. And Oregon's kind of made itself one of those places that's a little bit more stringent. Whereas uh, Idaho, uh, a little, a little more lax and uh, a little more opportunity, uh, lighter on the taxes. So I've saw a lot of clients kind of move in that direction. I studied the market a little bit. It's obviously in the headlines quite a bit um, and being a quote unquote, you know, overinflated market. Not really seeing that as much. Um, really? That's well, I mean, I think there was just a lot of catch up and that's kind of what happened here. Um, you know, in the late 90s, probably early 2000s, um, the Portland market was just behind San Francisco and Seattle, you know, yeah. and so there was a really big push in Portland um, and that, that really pushed it up. And people saw that as being, whoa, you know, this isn't sustainable. So uh, I think kind of the same thing has happened in Boise. I think that they've got uh, a really great um, environment with a lot of the same amenities as far as outdoor stuff. And the culture is really good there. The food's really good there. They got a great downtown, young energy with Boise State. So you see a lot of that, um, you know, benefit i think that people are seeing and with all the flexibility of working remote and having an opportunity to expand and try something new you've, you've seen a lot of people just move out not just to the suburbs but they're trying new locations yeah no that makes sense and I'm, do you know what the tax rate is the income tax rate is in idaho off your offhand i'm not, i know i'm not sure but i know washington's obviously zero so that's a draw but what about idaho yeah I, you know my recollection i'd have to go back i think i'm i'm, I'm at about six and a half percent something like that Okay. I mean, is that the kind of typical tax income tax rate? In yeah. Idaho? Okay. Yep. So we're not dealing with something like Texas or Florida or no. Washington. Where well, yeah, Washington, tax. you don't have a state income tax, yeah. right? And I, I think you're at about six and a half percent over in um, in Idaho. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the things that's actually really, you know, uh, as everyone saw and had a front row seat to and is probably sick of, um, you know, what happened in 2020 and 2021 and some of the stuff to the extent that we're still navigating around COVID is, it became very, very divisive. The topic was really divisive, and uh, we're going to leave largely the politics of that aside. But I think what that did is it really revolutionized the way people looked at how they wanted to live their life and what they wanted to have access to. And then you add in, you know, jobs that historically would have never ever considered you eligible for remote work. Now suddenly, you know, that's the only option. And so you've seen people, you know, kind of go all over the country. Um, you know, there's a lot of people and, and that's probably driven, you know, some of the expansion in the, in the Western region around places like Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, you know, Utah, things like that. Um, largely because people had that freedom, but also I think people wanted to find, like, finally they just were just getting to a point where the ideology became clear that maybe people were not in alignment with, you know, the era they were and so they wanted to go to a new market. And, um, I don't think we've really seen that bifurcation that extreme before, at least not in substantial amount of time. There haven't really been any major national issues that have been as prolonged and I would say as divisive in a geographical way is what I would say. I mean, obviously there's some other hot button issues, but yeah, I mean, I think, have you, have you seen that as being kind of a driver for? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think to your point, this is something that really impacted every single person. There's not one person, whether you got sick or not, mm -hmm. it, it impacted you f for schools, for work, for job, for uh, access to, you know, some of the amenities that we love doing, you know, people that love to go out and hang out at restaurants for a while, they didn't, they weren't doing it. So they had to find something else, some other avenue, you know, and I think wineries. that <laughs> wineries, yes, the great outdoors with 
wine. And then there's also, you know, the people that stayed local, you know, they, they didn't necessarily need to move to Idaho or Utah mm-hmm. or Nebraska. Um, some people moved like for their specific life purposes, right? They needed uh, a home office. Now they had a yeah. three bedroom yeah. with kids occupying two of the three and they needed a fourth bedroom. So you saw a lot of uh, movement, even within the vicinity of their existing location. Um, they might stay in the same school and they just needed to upgrade. Um, yeah. So you, you saw quite a bit of that. Uh, I think that fueled a lot of the transition in market. And for a lot of people, it was it was a lateral move, you know? Mm-hmm. So if they're selling a house at you know today's rate, they buy a house in today's rate, that's a lateral move. They yeah. just usually are, are increasing what they're what they're looking for and the market was strong. I think where you're gonna see kind of a shift there is that you could buy the same house at the same price, but the monthly payment's different as the interest rates are ticking up. And I, I think yeah. that's kind of that's going to be one of the things that shifts that market. I think that's the thing that people forget about. Sometimes with real estate, when they're looking to pencil a rental or they're going to sell their own property, is you know rates move up and down. Everyone kind of knows that, um, and values do too. But really, people buy homes based or rent homes for that matter based on payments. What is their monthly payment, right? Because it's just What's your cash flow situation? At the end of the day, that's what matters. People don't really, I mean, net worth is nice, but if you can't liquidate it and you can't spend it right away, um, and if you do spend it, you've obviously no longer have that asset. So payments have really driven everything, um, at least in real estate. Yeah, so uh, obviously in, in the management world, there's a lot going on too because we had a lot of uh, mm-hmm. a lot of filters you had to go through. They put us. They put a stop collection on uh, landlords for a little while. They had some funds that were government funded. So tell tell us a little bit about um, how chaotic your life got for a second here while you were kind of sorting through all that and maybe the impact it had on tenants. Did you see a lot of tenants moving, or were they kind of bunkered down? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a great question. I mean I think that you know we definitely saw we didn't see a lot of our existing tenant base move. Um, I think a lot of people in our portfolio hunkered down um, because people weren't really going anywhere. Obviously, some people wanted to, you know, maybe expand and get get that, um, you know, extra bedroom for home office and things like that. And so where we really saw a lot of activity was in just the leasing process. In fact, you know, we were kind of surprised because when everything kind of happened in, you know, mid-March of 2020, it was probably March through April, things kind of grinded to a pretty substantial halt on the leasing side. So, you know, vacant properties were not getting a lot of activity, but pretty much six weeks into it, everyone kind of decided that they needed to start looking again. And from that point forward, we never saw a slowdown in the leasing of vacant properties. Um, And so I think people who are looking to move did. Uh, I'm sure we had some people give notice in our portfolio to probably do the same thing, but we didn't see a lot of that. Um, it It did seem like a lot of people stayed put, but we were really shocked by how many people were ready to jump back in and just tour houses, you know, and, um, and that worked out great for, for our clients in a lot of ways. Um, obviously there's a lot of other things that that happened that were just, you know, things that people would have never predicted. And I, and I think that this is one of those things that is an inflection point, if that's probably the accurate use of that verbiage would be, when the government implemented eviction moratoriums, they did something that we had never seen in the history of our country. And it changed the entire perspective that people had on investing in real estate. I mean, 
vacancy was always a risk, right? When you own rental property, you're like, ah, oh, I got a budget for some vacancy. I'm going to have some vacancy at some point. And you might budget one, two, three months of vacancy in a year, which, you know, hopefully you don't have that much, but, you know, it would be smart to pencil for that and basically say, hey, look, you should have two or three months of mortgage payments to be able to make if the property's vacant, you don't have rent coming in. That was just kind of a generally a good thing to do. And all of a sudden now owners were finding themselves in a situation where it's like, well, no, it's not two or three months. It's uh, how about it's six months? Oh wait, actually it's 12 months. Oh wait, it's 18 months. I mean, we're talking about eviction moratoriums that lasted nearly two years and to this day would have continued if they had not been struck down by the Supreme Court. It shows you how bold the government is when it comes to pushing through mandates regardless of whether or not they're legal. I mean, I knew or at least believed firmly from the start that this was illegal, that they weren't allowed to do this, that it's a taking of property without compensation um, and a lot of other issues. But, you know, it worked its way through the courts. Supreme Court was basically like, yeah, you know, we're not cool with this. And that was kind of their initial response is, hey, we're not cool with this. We're not going to stop the eviction moratorium because it's going to end in two weeks. So it doesn't really matter. And that was kind of a, you know, uh, indicator to the administration that, hey, you should probably, you know, not extend these. And lo and behold, extended them. And, you know, then, you know, the uh, different plaintiffs had to go back to court. Actually, one of them is somebody I know. Uh, he's part of the, the suit, Robert Gilstrap. Um, pretty famous guy out of Georgia, but nonetheless, um, you know, went back and they're just like, Hey, you know, we told you guys not to extend this and here you are. And so they formally said, yeah, you can't do this. Um, well, that didn't stop the Biden administration from saying like, well, we're going to try to keep extending it. And it just, I mean, it really kind of blew my mind, but you know, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole too much, but cause really the takeaway is, is that you've got a situation now where you know that the government has this ability. Now, there's a Supreme Court decision on this, so hopefully, you know, we don't run into this same issue, but you can see how extreme they go. And, and you know, there was an argument for a long time about well, housing is a, you know, a right, right? And that's one debate. But the other issue was, was like, we do not want to displace people. People need shelter during this. Otherwise, they're going to increase um, the likelihood that, you know, COVID is going to spread throughout the community if you've got people on the streets and things like that. And, you know, what's interesting about that is you didn't see any other, any other businesses being put into this position. Um, you know, grocery stores, people need to, to eat, right? You know, you didn't see um, grocery stores having to take IOUs from people, uh, you know, if the masks were something that they wanted to do. And, I, and I'm not debating whether or not masks are good or bad. I'm just simply reflecting on, like, some of the behavior and inconsistencies because, you know, if the government thought these masks were a good idea – why didn't they just distribute them to the public? Like, like, why did people have to go and acquire these on their own through their own means? And you had states, you know, competing against other states for these things at the beginning. And it just seems like, you know, this was obviously not handled very well. But the, the big point is, is for, for landlords, it really scared a lot of people because there were, you know, there are some mortgage companies that were willing to work with people, you know, who had tenants who weren't paying, but, you know, not all of them. And more importantly, you know, what happens if that owner is going to you know, get foreclosed on when their tenant's not paying? I mean, we, we had clients who, you know, tenants owed fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 in rent. That's one unit. That's one property. I mean, and, and how are, and they're still expected to maintain the asset. If there's a repair, send somebody in, you know, if there's a roof leak, obviously they got to deal. I mean, it's just, they're taking on all of the operational expenses without really any revenue. And that's just not a sustainable way to operate. And I think it scared a lot of people. 
uh, and people when they've had their first opportunity to exit, they have, uh, especially in the single family side of things. And that's that's not good because nationally we have a house, housing shortage. We have a, a supply issue. We certainly have a supply issue largely in the West, um, but it is a national issue. And, and those are the kind of things that are going to have lasting impacts on, on the market. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that obviously behavior is based on consumer confidence, uh, especially when it comes to real estate investing, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, the oil companies are going to decide if they're going to start refineries and drill if they think that the business is going to be shut down in the next 10 years. They're not going to invest a billion dollars in that. And real estate works the same way. You know, if I'm afraid that that asset's going to be taken, even though it's it's a privately held asset and the government's going to say, oh, yeah, you can take all the risk. You can put put the money up front. You can bank on that being your retirement. But at any point, we're going to stop you from collecting the income from that asset. I think that is that is a, a scary piece. Now, some of the states uh, and federal funds, um, you know, they set up programs where they were paying the landlord directly, which I think was kind of their uh, peaceful resolution to, you know, helping the landlord or helping the tenant remain in place and getting those funds to landlords, right? So I know the state of Oregon was distributing funds. I know I have some uh, tenants in my Wyoming park that mm-hmm. um, are receiving funds from the state of Wyoming. The money goes directly to me as the landlord. They have an application process. Now, initially, the moratorium itself was not means-based, right? I mean, I think that was a big frustration for a lot of landlords because, sure. yeah. you know, <laughs> they'll pull up in front of the uh, the house where their tenant is and they got a brand new car, but they haven't they stopped paying rent because there's a moratorium. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a really frustrating piece. Uh, how did you see those funds distributed uh, for your residents, it, was it was it a painful process getting through the paperwork with the with the state, or were those funds delivered pretty quickly? How did that work for you guys and, and your team? Yeah, uh, no, that's a great question. And yeah, I mean, and, and I think the theory of um, you know what the government was trying to do probably made some sense. And one of the problems is that states weren't really set up to do this. So I can't comment on really a lot of the other states because we don't operate in those markets. I think that some of the other states probably did better than Oregon, um, but some of them probably did equally as bad. But Oregon was ranked in like the top four states for this distribution of funds. I mean, most landlords didn't see money until you know almost a year after the eviction moratoriums had started. I mean, the state of Oregon had done probably one of the worst jobs possible getting this money out. At first, they tried to have all these different agencies and groups distribute the funds. Um, but then they had no centralized database. And I mean, the application process took forever. There's some gamemanship that's happening within those that organization and the tenants because, you know, the laws are written in a way where it's nuanced. It's like, oh, if you apply and your application's pending, then the landlords can't take any action against you. Once we give you a decision, especially if it's denial, then again, depending on, you know, where we were talking about in this timeline because of the laws, then the landlord might have the opportunity to file, you know, for eviction to recover the property. But these things were being stalled and, and, and um, you know, basically left on the back burner. So in some ways, it looked like that they were doing it intentionally. But regardless, Oregon did a really, really poor job of executing on this. And finally, just, you know, probably, I think, four or five months ago, they kind of scrapped their entire process at the um, displeasure of a lot of the uh, organizations working in partnership with the state and um, you know the state agency but uh, and, and handed this whole t- entire process over to a company operating uh, I think on the east coast out of Boston or something like that I mean the whole thing was just a big mess and the problem is is that you know 
it's kind of like if someone's drowning, right? You know, it doesn't really do you any good if you, you know, throw them, uh, you know, a little swimming device 10 minutes after they've gone underwater, right? Like it's, there's a very time sensitive situation and there's a lot of landlords who got caught up in that. Um, and either a, you know, are in situations where they, you know, lost their properties or they're in a situation where they burned through all of their entire savings and, you know, they recovered maybe some of the rent or not all of it. You know, it's just a very challenging thing. And one of the things that you mentioned too, is about means testing it. I mean, this was a very bizarre thing because, you know, we had some tenants who didn't pay for a long time and there was some windows where these kind of moratoriums like would sunset and there's like a week or two before they got, you know, an extension through the legislature. And, you know, we would approach those households and say, Hey, you've got a pretty substantial balance. Like you've you know been not paying for six months and now we're going to have to move forward with the process of evicting you because you haven't paid. And when there was that uncertainty, a lot of those people turned around and wrote us a check for the full amount. So we knew that they were sitting on this money and I'm not going to say that's the majority of the tenants. We got really, really lucky um, and we're fortunate in that the vast majority of our portfolio, our residents, you know, paid in full within 30 days, right? So they weren't all necessarily paying on the first, but the majority of the residents were paying in full. And when I say majority, I would say probably 90 to 92% were paying in full within, you know, 30 days of receiving, you know, their uh, invoice or rent being due. So we had a pretty good um, experience in that regard. Now, not everyone had that experience. I think if you get more into heavily weighted multifamily, class B's and C's and things like that, you know, I think I read some national numbers probably in like the 65 to 75% of the tenants were paying and then a large chunk weren't. And again, that blows apart any sort of pro forma. I mean, most people, when they underwrite a building for vacancy, they think about 5% vacancy, maybe 10% if they want to try to stress test their building, but not effectively 30%, you know, the building being vacant, which it wasn't, you're still having to service, you're, you're you know, spending money. But um, yeah, so the pro- programs are a pretty big debacle. And, you know, I, it was just, they weren't, they didn't have a mechanism to distribute the money. I don't think by and large, there was intent to cause problems. But federal government's like, here's all these, all this money and the state's like, all right, well, we don't have a mechanism for getting this money out. They kind of do, um, but you know they 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 did poorly on a lot of fronts. I mean, if you talk to people about um, unemployment claims in Oregon, in particular, I mean the the experience was equally as bad. So, um, you know, the, the government just unfortunately, you know, they're reactive. They're making decisions without thinking. And the big point of this is, at the end of the day, you have to think about what could happen if you end up having a tenant who's not paying for a year plus. Hopefully this never happens again, but um, you know, given what the government's willing to do uh, for political reasons largely, they're going to sacrifice landlords, and, and that's just something that we've learned. And they were singled out unlike any other industry. There's not one industry, service or product-based industry, that was asked to provide a service without payment. Hospitals weren't even put in that position. Hospitals were still getting paid. Um, so, I mean, it's just a very bizarre, bizarre thing. So you mentioned a little bit about uh, you know some of these folks that are investing specifically in single family homes that are now exiting that space. Yeah, where are you seeing them move to? Like, are they upgrading? Are they doing a 1031 into something larger? Like, uh, I've got several clients that are feeling the same. They're ready to exit um, high liability, high restriction areas mm-hmm. like Oregon, Portland specifically. And they're wanting to move into something that has less liability, a little more stability, 
still similar opportunity, and we'll get into some of those numbers as far as expected appreciation and sales in a minute. But um, I'm I'm seeing them take that and say, oh well, you know, I had I, I have two houses. Mm-hmm. I went from 100% occupied to 50% occupied because one of my tenants just stopped paying. The other one, you know, they had a job, so it's it, that worked out fine. That would have destroyed me had I had both houses go vacant. Are those guys moving into multifamily stuff and buying a nine-unit building? And they're saying, okay, well, if I lose two that's obviously a little bit easier to to you know chew we're getting some of that but i think that really what it's done is caused people to sit back and kind of look at what are their priorities and what are they needing to do right so you know we usually tell people you know if you're going to be a landlord in at least our part of the country whether and, and i would probably say this is true of really any west coast place like oregon washington california um but here we always tell people you know if you're planning on being a landlord for less than five years you're taking on a lot more risk simply because of the regulatory environment um, and just a lot of the other issues that can come up operationally. If you're going to hold long term, a lot of that stuff tends to fall by the wayside because you can average the cost out over time. You're getting a lot of appreciation. The probability of that happen, those you being confronted with those scenarios repeatedly is also quite low. So, you know, it's one of those things where if you're planning on being here long term, it's actually a, a good market. And, and sadly, probably the number one reason that's a good market is the government is literally out there killing your competition. They're stopping developers from wanting to develop. They're stopping landlords from wanting to stay landlords. And so we've seen a decline in single family housing uh, since 2014 in the Portland metro re- region. Um, and so we've got some pretty interesting numbers out there, actually, uh, at least in the city of Portland specifically. Um, you know, in 2017, there was, you know, this was kind of the estimate, it was 27,656 units in 2017, single family homes, detached homes. Um, and by 2020, that had declined to 23,669. So that's a loss of 33,987 units. Um, that's a pretty substantial decrease. And if you look in the metro area, which includes other cities, um, you also saw a similar decline where it was originally at 63,861 in 2017, going down to 57,444 in 2020. That's a loss of just over 6,400 units. That's a tremendous amount of single-family housing stock being lost as rentals. Um, it basically means that you know those properties are going to end users who are you know are occupying them to live in, um, and then you, you you couple that with you know, the lack of development pipeline happening on the multifamily side, we're just going to be underbuilt for the foreseeable future. But to get to your point, you know, I think the thing is, is that we've had some clients who've decided to exit the real estate space entirely because they like the idea of equities. It's more appealing. It's more liquid to them. Um, it just, it's something that they know they can get out of, right? They didn't close the stock market during COVID, right? In fact, stock market probably saw the largest infusion of cash in that period, you know, 18 months than it had in the last you know, 20 years. I mean, it was pretty significant. So, you know, people like having that liquidity. But uh, as far as trading up, yeah, some people who can do that, they can uh, and they want to do that. But, you know, that takes cash and equity. Um, and then we've seen just people move regions, too. So I think people have kind of been doing whatever they think fits their risk tolerance and what their goals are. Um, and again, you know, there are no markets that are, well, I shouldn't say none, but most markets are investable, meaning like you can invest in them and do well, but you have to understand the ecosystem that you're operating in and people just 
largely don't usually know that information. When they do, it's a little too late because now they're kind of stuck in the web of whatever it is that's causing them a lot of you know heartburn. So, which is the the purpose of this podcast, right? I mean, what we try to do is figure these things out, and when we find a nugget, we try to share that with the audience. So obviously, you've got the people on the on the, on the one end that are really devastated by this. What percentage of your residents ended up either not paying for a period of time and getting caught up later or just didn't pay at all? Because, I mean, I heard uh, in talking to a few other property managers and just kind of being in that space and having clients and whatnot, that really it's only about 5 to 8% of the, the dwelling units stopped paying for a little while, which is not a small amount when you own the home that is not collecting rent. I'm just wondering if you have kind of a ballpark feel in your portfolio what that looked like. I think that we had a similar experience. I think the amount of tenants that we're actually having to evict over COVID balances is what I guess we would call them, you know, is very, very small. I mean, it's probably less than 1% of our portfolio where we're actually like, hey, enough time's elapsed where, you know, you haven't paid for a long period of time. We still haven't gotten any rent assistance for you. We haven't gotten any money from you. Like now we're having to file on you. So that's a pretty low number. But, you know, we kind of oscillated between 5 and 10%, I would say, in our portfolio of tenants who were delinquent in terms of not paying rent. Um, so it wasn't too bad. But again, I think it, a lot of that has to do with, again, this is single family versus multifamily. Those numbers do look different. And some of that's going to be regional too. Um, and, you know, part of that is because it's going to be dependent on what kind of jobs people had. I mean, one thing I will say that's, you know, interesting though, is that very, very few people had a reason to not pay their rent. I mean, even if they weren't getting their rental assistance from the government in the sense that, hey, the government's going to come in and make up like six months of your back rent, which by the way is kind of um, for a lot of people a slap in the face who were paying their rent through COVID. And now you've got somebody who's got this essentially free check, free money. And there was really no way where the government was testing to see if they even had money. So maybe they have money and now they're just getting their, their rent. I mean, that's creating, you know, what I think economists like to call moral hazard. But when people were dealing with these issues, they were getting premiums on their unemployment. So either you were employed and earning money, so you should have been able to pay your rent, or you were unemployed and you were getting a premium on your unemployment, so you should have been able to pay rent. And then you got some stimulus money. But there really doesn't it doesn't make any sense why people were in need of the rental assistance when you either are employed and you have the money, or you're not employed and you're getting extra money. I mean, the unemployment benefits were around for a significant period of time. So it's really just not totally clear. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who fall into a maybe a gray area where, you know, maybe neither one of those things applied. They weren't eligible for unemployment and, um, you know, obviously and didn't have a job. So those people do exist. Um, you know, probably a lot of the gig economy, people like that were probably impacted by that. So I could see that. But it, it wasn't as many people. I mean, the, the government has made this out to be like, you know, there's going to be these widespread evictions and people in the streets and it's like i mean we might see an uptick a little bit but i mean we wouldn't see what they were kind of making it out to be because a lot of people especially people who are functioning meaning you know they don't have any issues with potentially substance abuse or mental illness which is a cause for a lot of people to end up on the streets if you're kind of the average person if your choice is moving with a friend or a family member versus live on the street you're going to do that so I mean, that's what people have historically done throughout American history is when the economy is not good, they, you know, increase density within the household. So 
they just add more people, you know, yeah. and around the world, you've got multi-generational families. But I mean, that's why at least in, you know, all over the country and so, you know, so forth with older housing stock, you see these homes that were originally maybe single family homes. They got chopped up into duplexes and fourplexes. And that was because those people endured economic cycles where they needed to do that. So, um, you know, it's, it's just kind of an odd odd approach. Yeah, well, I mean, I understand what you're saying about the moral hazard. I think that has it tends to be the the trend is that, you know, no one feels sad or bad for the landlord when they have high vacancy and the economy is not good and we're not getting, you know, high rents we still have to maintain the property. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everyone feels bad for the tenant when they're paying market rents and you know, damages or the bills are being paid uh, on behalf of the resident. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting um, you know, how that cycle works. I wouldn't put it past the government to do it again. I definitely um, am leaning toward, you know, protecting my assets by diversifying both asset class and geographically. Um, you know, I, I want to stay in a familiar area, so I, I do enjoy the Western United States as opposed to, you know, moving into, into other areas currently just because, you know, proximity-wise, I feel comfortable there. But, um, you know, there there is opportunity overseas. There's in different countries. There's uh, opportunities across the country. So tell me a little bit, uh, not a crystal ball because none of us have that. So where do you see rents going currently? Cause, so now we have this interesting scenario. Job market's pretty strong. It's getting a little bit more balanced. Um, wages are up by about four and a half percent, but inflation is up by nine percent. So you're still taking a cut on your wages overall. Cost of doing business is high. Cost of materials is high, and then you got you know those materials showing up in six months from now, not today. So there's a lot of factors that go into that. Where do you see the rental market here in the foreseeable future as we continue to invest? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, and again, real estate, it's that cliche is all about, you know, location, location, location. So I think different markets are going to you know, fare differently and be impacted differently by this. Um, you know, there's it, there's a lot of moving parts to this. One, you know, rents are going to continue to rise, and we're going to continue to see that. And that's for a lot of different reasons. I mean, one is just the old-fashioned supply and demand, right? There is not enough housing stock. And again, I mentioned earlier, that's national. So, you know, you got similar demand, you know, supply is not really keeping pace. That's that's a case for rent increases. Um, you've also got a lot of landlords who are trying to make up lost ground because they either did not receive rent, you know, during the eviction moratoriums or uh, they didn't choose to raise rent. Right. I, knew, I mean, tons and tons of our clients not only did not increase rent during um you know, the kind of height of COVID and during that whole probably, you know, 12 to 18 month period. Um, but some actually gave the tenants credits, right? And so, you know, there's a lot of people who are now trying to make up some lost ground because maybe their circumstances have changed or, you know, they're like, hey, we need to now do this because when are we, when's our next opportunity to do that? And the market's supporting it, right? The market's supporting that. So, um, you know, we're going to see rents continue to rise in that regard. I think another driver of that is, you know, you mentioned interest rates. Um, a lot of people who are going to be buying homes have now postponed that decision. So that adds to the demand of housing and that's going to cause more pressure on rents. Um, and then I think, you know, from, from that standpoint, real estate is a really, really unique asset in that it is one of the few vehicles you can use to really hedge inflation. Right. Um, so historically, you know, rents 
keep excellent pace with kind of what's happening with the money supply. And people talk about housing costs being so expensive, and that's really a function of the money supply and financing mechanisms like tools and things like that. So um, I think overall, from a cash flow standpoint, we should overall be pretty optimistic. Uh, one of the concerns, though, is is that the Fed is in a tough position, right? They're having to balance unemployment and inflation. And from what it seems like, it seems like their priority is inflation. So what that could mean is that they're going to take aggressive action and it's going to result in a lot of job loss. Now, if your property is in a market that is sensitive to job losses uh, and you're in industries that uh, are not as recession-proof and not as resilient, you may have a different experience. Right, you may be running into a situation where you're going to have cash flow issues, uh, where you're going to have vacancy issues. Um, again, every market's so different; it's hard to say. But you know, I would look around and see what industries support your market and see if they're vulnerable to, you know, recessions. Um, and so that's the thing that I would be thinking about. Where we are, we don't really have an economy that's based on one particular industry. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of like, you know, some areas where it's just they've got all their eggs in one basket. Um, so this area is probably going to continue to see probably pretty strong rent growth. But but I would suspect as we move forward, unemployment's going to go up. Inflation's going to come down, but it's going to take a while. They're going to have to raise rates a lot more than they already have to get the, to where it needs to come down. So we're going to have an economy that's just, you know, stalled. I mean, it certainly seems like it's going to be somewhat of a fickle um, economy and environment for the next couple of years. You know, we've got a, an election coming up here in November, so everyone's aware of that on, from a political perspective. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of these decisions are made on a political basis as opposed to what's best for the American people at the time. And that's kind of an, un an unfortunate thing. You know, one, one thing that inflation does as well, uh, specific to Oregon, uh, but also, you know, across the board, when everything costs more money, you have to bring the prices up, right? I mean, the furnace that went out three years ago was 3000 bucks, and now it's 4600 right? So, I mean... Yeah, I just had the pleasure of replacing one yeah. of those. Oh, sweet. Uh, you know, the other problem is that uh, sometimes you can't get a furnace tomorrow, right? They're, they're mm -hmm. waiting, for, yeah. waiting for them to get into the shop, and then they're waiting for their two employees instead of four because they're short on staff. So, mm -hmm. you know, the whole logistical piece, I think, of navigating and managing those assets... And really kind of trying to think ahead, I think, is, is a really important step. Just like you budget for vacancy, you got to budget for repairs, you have to take into consideration timing quite a bit. It's a lot cheaper to replace an air conditioner in the fall or early spring than it is in the middle of the summer when it's an emergency call. So those types of, of um, pieces of planning I, I am recommending to my clients you know, currently just think about what you're going to be doing in the next couple of years. And, you know, I probably wouldn't wait for the prices to come down. I don't think it's going to be that type of market. Um, from a, a housing perspective, I don't see the markets dropping um, consistently. And a lot of it has to do with supply and demand. Like you mentioned, people mm -hmm. who are in their homes currently, uh, if they're not in a situation where they have to sell, they probably are not going to sell. They're going to sit tight. They're going to wait it out. Because like I said, if they sell a half a million dollar house and they buy a half a million dollar house, but they go from 3% to 6% on their rate, their payment goes up drastically. So the, the chances of that happening, I think, are, are fairly minimal. Um, sure. I'm still seeing some really great growth um, in the metropolitan uh, areas. You know, For example, Portland has an anticipated sales increase of about 6.1%. 
and a price increase of about 4.3% in 2022. So this is according to the National Association of Realtors. They took these major metros and they kind of placed them all and they were trying to, they are trying to project what we're looking at for growth and, you know, not just um, the amount of sales, but also the sales price modification. So mm-hmm. Portland's at 6.1 um, on the sales increase and then 4.3 on price. Uh, Seattle is at 9.6% uh, on sales increase and they're up on price by 7.5%. And Boise, which we talked about um, earlier, you know, I think even though they're saying, hey, you know, this is an overpriced market, the expectation and the anticipated growth is pretty crazy. They're looking at 12.9% increase in sales and then 7.9% increase in values. So, you know, you're still hmm. seeing these, these major metros. Salt Lake is, is um, pretty similar, actually, to Portland. Uh, as far as numbers go, you know, they're right in that 6% range yeah. on increase. And then they've got um, uh, the value is right around four and a half percent. So you're still seeing a lot of that growth pattern and they're anticipating that. I know these things are, these decisions are being made by the minute. The numbers keep coming out. Like we said before, consumer confidence really plays a pretty big part in that. So we'll mm-hmm. kind of see what that market does. But, you know, if you're, if you're looking to purchase a rental property, I don't think that you're going to see rates go significantly down here later. Uh, you know, in the next couple of years. So if you're looking at, you know, doing a 1031 or you want to jump in, I don't think that you're going to get a screaming deal necessarily next year. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it probably varies a lot. You know, again, it's going to be dependent upon the local economies in those areas. I mean, there's some places that inevitably I think probably will see larger swings, right? Like Las Vegas, right? You know, um, parts of Arizona, Phoenix, things like that. Those are places that historically, um, have more extreme swings right so when the economies slow down they tend to see things fall and when the economy is starting to grow again they tend to be kind of the first to rise some of that's probably largely the result though of like these areas maybe having these being second homes for people right well, you know, one, one other aspect of that, too, is when you're looking at supply and demand, it's important just to kind of think about that on a graph, right? I mean, the market can slow down. If you get half the number of houses that go on the market and half the number of buyers, it's still a stable market, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If you get the same number going on the market and only half the people buying, that's when houses start competing with each other and get lower and lower and lower and the price drops. So because there's so much movement that's already been made over the last couple of years, last 10 years, really – and we have a housing supply shortage and the rates make it not really worth moving again, I think that's going to create a little bit of stable uh, price point as far as the the actual values not going down. That's true. I think one thing that I will point out, though, and I think that we probably will see some opportunity, though, for people to capture better deals. I mean, one is bidding wars are probably going to subside, right? So you're not going to yeah. see that as much. So that's going to help out people a lot in terms of you know, not having to have, you know, escalation clauses or appraisal gaps or things like that. Um, but the other thing, too, to look for more than anything really is inventory. And that's a very localized thing, right? So we just saw Portland's inventory, the metro area came out. It's now at two months of inventory. That's the highest it's been in two years. So I think inventory, if that continues to rise, th- I mean, that's going to that's gonna give people who are wanting to buy a little bit more wiggle room. Now, two months is still very much a seller's market historically. So, you know, I wouldn't feel super optimistic about your negotiating position as a buyer just yet. But, you know, if that starts creeping up to four or five, six months, 
which I don't know if it will. Um, but if it does, if that were to occur, then you would see a pretty big shift and, and that could happen. I think the other thing too is that, you know, because properties have seen appreciation, I mean, what, like 12 years now? Like we've just seen markets appreciating for like 12 years. People who did buy 10 years ago have a lot of equity and a lot of equity to potentially play with. So they might be willing to drop their price maybe more, um, which can have a cascading effect because they're like, well, you know, I've got a few hundred thousand extra equity here. I didn't really like in their mind, maybe think like I didn't earn this money. So they're like, well, and it's kind of this phantom idea. So it's like, well, maybe I'll just drop my price 20,000. And then again, 20,000, two weeks later, and that can, can affect all the other properties who maybe, you know, are getting squeezed. So, I mean, there's a lot of different things. I think I would look for, I would look at inventory and I would look at, um, you know, I think probably pending sales, right? Like how many properties go pending that kind of helps you look at that. Yeah. I mean, time on market is something that's important. Um, it, it tells you it, that if you remained stable, it, in other words, if sellers believe that their house was worth 500000 and it's still worth five hundred, but it spends you know 60 days on market when the average time is 21 days, then mm-hmm. you know that you should be dropping your price. You, that's where you can kind of see. So I kind of, when I look at the market, I look at current inventory, days on market, and what those uh, the price point is, closed ratio, to the mm-hmm. active uh, posted original price. Yeah. So th- that gives that that's a, a pretty good indicator to me. The other thing that I watch really closely is the affordability index. So for for people that don't kind of understand affordability, they basically take median income in a specific area and the median house price, and then they say if you're making median income, could you afford that house or not, or how much yeah. of that house can you afford? And this month dropped below 100%, meaning you cannot afford a house. You can only afford about 86% of the household uh, if you make median income. That's Hmm. the first time in the last 10 years. So it's been 10 years since it has dipped below 100. So the affordability factor, I think, is gonna play a really significant part. Some of that has to do with inflation. Some of it has to do with interest rates making that more expensive because it's balanced on what that payment would be, right? But it's, I think that that's a really good benchmark. Um, you know, if you look at the last downturn in the market when it tanked, the affordability was crazy. It was at like, uh, when, it, when it went down initially, or just prior to it going down rather, they were at about 78 to 85% affordability, depending on the metro area that you were looking at. And then when the market tanked, um, you know, as we were climbing out of it, we were at like 150%. So the average person could afford a house and a half and right and yeah. now we're in a situation where you can't you can't afford a whole house so i think that's something to watch and to definitely you know have on your radar um it's been for my clients what they want to know is okay well am i going to see some of these investment properties go down so i look at it, you know people pay for cash flow right so sure. one of the factors that you're going to have to maneuver is okay if i do a 1031 exchange you got to you have to pay at or above the sales price of your existing asset, your subject property, and the replacement property has to be at or more. So that means you take a $800,000 property and sell that and you got to spend 1.2 or something above 800. Well, now you're not only buying more, but you're paying a higher interest rate most likely, right? So Mm -hmm. that's something that a lot of investors have to calculate before they decide to do a 1031 and convert it to another asset. But the other thing too is, you know, if rents continue to go up, you know, the cash flow continues to go up. So I don't necessarily know that there'll be a bunch of deals out there 
uh, from a sell perspective. There's always something going. There's always an investor that decides to liquidate that asset and convert to another or maybe one that has deferred maintenance. So there's going to be some stabilization assets certainly out there. But, you know, in looking for, quote unquote, deals, um, you know, I, I don't they'll be out there. I think it'll still remain, you know, fairly stable and, and consistent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think a lot of investors are going to be running for the hills. I mean, again, real estate's one of those vehicles that hedges inflation. So if you're going to park your money somewhere, it's actually probably one of the better places to park it and have some predictability about, uh, you know, being able to, at some point in the future, sell the property. I mean, if you're not in a situation where you need a lot of liquidity, but, you know, as I said, I think that inventories go up, you see prices drop, people are going to be able to pick up some stuff because they will adjust the price down. I mean, like people try to keep their payment and their affordability consistent. So if the prices have to fall to be in line with that, which based on what you were mentioning, at least kind of in this market, um, wages either have to go up or prices have to come down. It's one of the two to balance those things back out. But things always kind of revert back to the mean. So, you know, one of those will happen. And, and if wages go up, which is entirely possible, we've seen massive wage growth in the last 18 months, especially, um, that could also lead to companies laying off people, right? Because they can only afford so much infrastructure and they're going to keep their best and, you know, let the other people find a new place. So, um, I don't know. There's a lot to, a lot to anticipate. I feel good about real estate. Um, I definitely feel good about our market from a long-term perspective. Again, if I was getting in here for a year or two, I'd probably not be super optimistic, but, um, you know, not that that's a bad thing, but it's not the place that probably would be the highest and best use of your money for a year or two. Um, but longer horizons. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So, well, I mean, just, just the three, uh, markets that we're looking at as far as values that, I mean, they're ranging between four and 8% on the increase projected, Yeah, you know what I mean? And that's just three, the three metros that we kind of dabble in. So, um, you know, I'm seeing in, in the Western United States, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, still strong growth. People are still, um, you know, wanting to live there. We joked a little bit about, you know, California, uh, losing some folks, which, <laughs> uh, is expected, I think in general, but I think that there is also, you know, a lot of opportunity to continue to invest as, as you mentioned, to avoid inflation. Plus you have the appreciation side, you've got the depreciation side. Some of my clients are still looking at some opportunity zone assets, which is a little bit different because mm -hmm. we're pretty far down that road at this point. So some of those benefits have gone, but there, I mean, there's, there's still a ton of opportunity. Um, I had, there's a pretty significant shift into some of the uh, suburb areas moving out of the core uh, within the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've seen that with some of your tenants yeah. uh, or maybe even the uh, activity that you're getting on inner properties versus some of those suburb properties. Yeah. I mean, I think the suburbs people are starting to take a closer look at that. And again, I can't really speak for a lot of other markets, but you know, any, any city that is experiencing what Portland's experiencing, which is a livability issue, um, you know, a lot of crime, a lot of homelessness and really little to no action from the government or at least things that they're doing are um, seeming somewhat wasteful and ineffective and they have really no way of kind of measuring it. You are seeing a lot of people exit Portland. I mean, if you look at where some of the trendy restaurants are opening their next location, it's not Portland, it's in some of the suburbs. If you look at where a lot of the younger families are buying homes, part of it's affordability, but part of it is because of what's going on in the city and that's you know, they're looking in the suburbs. So it's kind of a bit interesting. It's a, a bit of a switch. Now, Portland still, I mean, the market here is just incredibly solid. We've seen, you know, people are still seeing good growth and appreciation of their homes. So it's not to say that it's, you know, 
complete disaster, but that's not the direction you want to see things go. You don't want to see disinvestment. Disinvestment is the beginning of a larger cycle that could be um, a pretty long-term downward trend, um, and it takes time to, you know, to course correct. So Portland, fortunately, does have an opportunity to really change its future this fall. Um, we have charter reform, which is up for uh, vote, and that's only every 10 years. Um, which changes the way the city council is run. Um, it could really pivot us from a antiquated style of government to those of a bigger city and how we should be operating. Um, and then we also have um, Joanna Hardesty is up for re-election um, this fall as well. And she is a commissioner that has been in charge of PBOT, which is largely the organization that has permitted the camping and the RVs on the street and, you know, those kind of things. So, um, there could be two pretty big major shifts that could really change Portland for, for the better. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. It'll come down to whether or not people here, the voters, have the courage to do it. I mean, I think that's, uh, that is one thing that we have seen kind of across the country is that people are, have gotten tired of inaction and mm-hmm. um, the ineffective behaviors and policies that are not implemented. You know, um, So, I mean, there, there is some... Uh, there's some reason for optimism. And so I, I certainly like that. Um, you know, from a, a national perspective, there's just a lot of stuff going on in culture and in our community, we're kind of redeveloping that culture and, you know, hopefully there's that, that shift is happening. It's Portland is unique in, uh, in that we're on a border town. Uh, bordering Washington, where there's some tax benefit, there's uh, a little bit of a culture shift. There are some companies that are, are opting to get out of, of Portland and get across state lines. I've got a, a client of mine and a good friend that is with a, a, a major company here in Oregon, and they're preparing to to exit Oregon after being here for 30 years. I mean, it's a it's a large company, and um, they're getting they're out. You know, and, and it makes sense. So yeah. Some of that um, has been a shift on the entre- entrepreneurial side and saying, well, you know, if my folks are, are working remotely, I can have my headquarters anywhere. And if those if the income is earned in another state, it doesn't have to filter through Oregon and, and go to pay Oregon. So that's one of the one of the interesting factors. I was speaking with an economist and he essentially was saying, well, Oregon, it, it'll take 10 years before Oregon can dig them, dig themselves out financially. I mean, we're in a situation where they seldom fix the PERS situation that they that they have. We got, um, you know, declining city and some of the amenities that need to be repaired that will cost money. And there's only one way to raise those funds, and that's through taxation. So I'm, I'm seeing higher taxes and um, basically passing the plate around to all the people that are out there working and, you know, grinding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're already seeing that through a lot of um, ballot measures that have gone into play. And I think we're going to continue to see that. But yeah, I mean, I think with with that note, um, it's probably good good point for us to to wrap up our our reboot episode here. Um, and you know, uh, we're excited to get back on track. We're excited to talk to more people. You know, investing in real estate, see how people have kind of survived. Um, you know, the whole COVID thing, how their investment strategies have changed. Um, but we're also excited to talk to some other folks so that we can kind of see what opportunities are out there. I mean, the whole point of this podcast is, you know, at the end of the day is about investing in the West. And, you know, to us, it made a lot of sense to kind of open our eyes and look around and say, you know, these things are all interrelated, right? Real estate is affected by 
you know, entrepreneurship and where people are building their businesses, right? Where, what new products and services are coming out? Um, you know, people are getting into all kinds of stuff, whether it's like, you know, Web3 or crypto or all kinds of stuff that, you know, you know <laughs> is beyond our expertise, but that's why we're looking forward to bringing on some uh, really awesome experts in these areas and to help expand. And so we can look at investment from a more holistic standpoint as opposed to just, hey, this is what we know is going on. Now, it is going to be regional, right? We're going to continue to focus on the West, but um, we think that, you know, it's going to be a lot of value. So excited to be back here with you, Matt. Yeah. Looking good. Looking a little tan. Thank you. I'm getting some sun. That's for sure. Lot, lots of that. lots of windshield time driving back and forth. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a great year. I'm looking forward to it. We've got some great guests lined up and um, I look forward to talking to you all soon. All right. Sounds good. Mm-hmm.